So as probably some of you know, this year marks the 30th anniversary of the publication of an important document by St. John Paul II, the encyclical letter Veritatis Splendor, the splendor of truth. It's a profound reflection on the moral law, on the place of the moral law in Christian life, and on certain tendencies in our culture that make the moral law difficult to accept or that distort its significance somehow. One of the encyclical's main themes is freedom. The very idea of morality presupposes a certain kind of freedom, namely the freedom that's inherent in the power of choice. If you do not have free choice, then you cannot be held morally responsible for what you do. But nowadays, even though our culture, this is obvious, our culture places a very high value on many kinds of freedom, it's become rather common to hear people denying the very existence of free choice. They even seem to regard the denial of free choice as a kind of liberation, and a liberation, among other things, precisely from moral responsibility. That's felt to be kind of an imposition, and maybe, an ev maybe even a source of strife. A prominent spokesman for that view today is a very popular speaker named Sam Harris. His lectures on this topic alone, just on free choice or freedom of the will, have millions of views on YouTube. <clears throat> Mr. Harris argues actually against many things. I honestly don't know whether he ever argues for anything, but one thing that he argues against is what he calls free will. As Dr. Goyette mentioned, and I'll explain later, I really prefer to speak of free choice. But we're basically talking about the same thing. And in this lecture, I'll use the two expressions, free will, free choice, pretty much interchangeably. Now, Harris, Mr. Harris offers several arguments against free will. I'll refer to one of them later in the lecture. But it's also interesting that he argues that we really ought to prefer to believe that free choice does not exist. His reason is that, there, is that if there is no free choice or no free will, then no one is to blame for what they do. They can't help it. And this is comforting, not only because then I cannot be blamed for what I do, but also kind of less egoistically, because I can't blame others either. They cannot help what they do. They have no choice. And if I cannot blame them, then I really can't be angry at them or disappointed with them or offended by them. Right? I can be more at peace with people, he says. So belief in free will leads to conflict, blaming people. 
Well, there may be some truth in that. But I would say two things. First, if it's true that without free will, there's no blame, it's also true that there's no praise. To deny free will is to deny responsibility not only for, good, for bad things, but also for good things. If I cannot be angry with people, neither can I be grateful to them. If someone treats me well, it's not because they choose to do so, on his theory, but because they can't help it. In fact, if Aristotle is right, to deny free will is to deny, to deny the very possibility of true friendship between people. Because being a friend is a matter of choice, he says. The other thing I want to say is that it's a little bit curious of Mr. Harris to be trying to persuade us that it is better to believe that free will does not exist than to believe that it does. He's speaking as though we had some choice about what we believe. I think that we do. But this is not very consistent with what he's trying to persuade us of. In the very course of arguing against free will, he seems to be taking it for granted. Well, you know, maybe he could answer that if he does go around saying these things, it's because he can't help it. He's not free to do otherwise. He has no choice. He could say that, too. <clears throat> anyway, I'm not trying to suggest that Mr. Harris is in bad faith. I'm sure he's sincere. My point is, rather, that as Etienne Gilson famously said, what philosophers know as men, they are liable to forget as philosophers. Or if they do not forget it, they get a little bit confused about it. I think free will in ordinary human life and human practice is perfectly obvious. I think it's so, this is so true that in itself, the existence of free will really doesn't need to be argued for. It's too evident too inescapable to doubt in any really practical way. Every time we stop and deliberate about what we are going to do, we are exercising our free will. And we know that we are. We know that. At least that's how I see it. But this is not to say that there are not philosophical problems or questions about free will. There are many of them. I certainly cannot address all of them right here in this lecture. But I do think that a good number of them are the results of some confusion. They cast doubt on free will only because they assume one or more mistaken conceptions of it. And this is why in the rest of my talk, I just want to do one thing. I just want to sketch a fairly precise and I hope correct, concept of the freedom of the will. I think that if people had the right concept of it, they would be far less likely to deny it. So my presentation has two parts, two main parts. First, I'll go over a number of things, five things, that the freedom of the will is not. 
And then secondly, I'll try to convey what I think is sort of the positive core of the concept of free will. I really think that this is the best way to defend its, its existence. And of course, I'll be drawing quite heavily on the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. So first, some things that do not belong to St. Thomas's concept of free will or free choice. First, Thomas does not think that the will is free about absolutely everything. By the will, the will I simply mean our capacity to want things that we think are good and to shun things that we think are bad. But there's at least one thing for Thomas that we simply must want. We can't help it. We are naturally determined to want it. And that is what he calls happiness. To be happy is to have the total good, to have literally what leaves nothing to be desired, to have it all. And we all want that. There's also something that we simply cannot want, something we necessarily shun, the contrary of happiness, which Thomas calls miseria, misery. Now, you might say that, well, that's a certain limiter, that's a constraint on the freedom of the will. Would we not be even freer if we were not determined to want or to shun anything? Some people have held that. But not in Thomas's view. No, we wouldn't be freer. Because he sees the desire for happiness as the very motor of free will. It's what I would call the master desire. It's what gives us mastery over all of our other desires. The desire for the total good is what enables us to really kind of actively determine ourselves, decide for ourselves about any merely partial good. That's what the freedom of the will is about. We are free about partial goods, limited goods. Without that determination to happiness, to the total good, we would not be free because we would just be passive. We would be slaves, driven by the urges of the moment, the way the beasts are. Later on, I'll talk about how the process of self-determination works. <clears throat> so that's the first thing. The second thing that free will is not is a power to act at random or for no reason. Undoubtedly, we do a lot of things for no reason, sort of on the spur of the moment, on a whim. And in some sense, we do those things freely because we're not determined to do them. But we don't really determine ourselves to do them either. We might be able to do so, but in many cases, we just sort of let ourselves be determined, let ourselves be guided by something else passively. Free will is something active. To have free will is to be, to some extent, one's own master, or to be in command. What does the activity of free will consist in? 
Well, first and foremost, it consists in the act that Thomas calls alexio, or choice. What's a choice? He gives a very simple formula for what a choice is. I think it's very good. To choose is to take one thing, refusing another. To take one thing, refusing another. Later, I'll look more closely at that formula. But what I want to say right now is that choices, when we do that, when we take one thing in the face of another, instead of another, we have a reason for doing so. We take one thing and refuse another because the one seems better to us somehow than the other. And to make a choice means to use that reason, to use how it seems better as grounds for accepting it, for taking that thing and rejecting the other, for applying that reason to the matter that the choice is about. I'm stressing this because many times the question of free will nowadays is treated as if it were about a power of doing things for no reason. And the result, you know, if, of treating it that way is if it turns out that the things that we really do for no reason can be explained without any special power of free will, then there seem to be no grounds for believing in free will. This is the conclusion that some people draw. In fact, one of the arguments against free, free will that Sam Harris sometimes invokes is along these lines. He cites a pretty famous experiment that was conducted in the 1980s by a scientist named Benjamin Libet. That experiment became, experiment became famous because it seemed to offer sort of scientific proof that the things that we think we do freely are really determined by unconscious processes in our brains. I'm not going to go into the details of the experiment, however, because, as a matter of fact, in recent years, Harris doesn't seem to be aware of this, but in recent years, other scientists have come to realize that as evidence about free will, that experiment was poorly conceived. In fact, it took for granted at least part of the thing that it was trying to prove, that it claimed to show. It took for granted that the actions whose free performance were in question, it took for granted that those actions were caused by those brain processes. It just took that for granted. It never proved that. So that experiment has really been debunked as a scientific experiment. But that's not really what interests me about it. The interesting thing is that it really had nothing to do with free will in the first place. It was not really about free will. They thought it was. The actions that it focused on were things that people did precisely at random for no reason. Things like bending a finger at irregular intervals or pressing one button or another or just any other sort of quite simple, quite meaningless bodily movements. You know, wiggle your foot now or not. Of course, we can make choices about things like that, 
But usually we don't, because they're too trivial. A scientist should know better than to look for free will and things like that. Now, it's because the, the, the will is not free about everything, that was my first point, and because some peop, sometimes people look for the freedom of the will outside the realm of choice in things we do for no reason, that I, I generally prefer to speak of free choice. That's the focus. Free choice or maybe free decision instead of free will. What really I think is really interesting is what freedom of choice amounts to, what that consists in. <clears throat> now, the third point, a third point which is quite closely connected with the second one, is that acts of free choice are not uncaused acts. Just as they always have reasons, they always have causes, usually a number of causes. What's a cause of a thing? I should ask you that but I won't. What's the cause? It's some other thing on which that thing somehow depends. Kind of a general idea of cause. And a human choice depends on many things. For example, it depends on the chooser. If the chooser didn't exist, neither would the choice. Also, it depends on the chooser's desire for happiness. All of our choices are in some way or another ordered toward happiness. Our choices also depend on the reasons for them. The reasons themselves are causes. And the reasons depend on many factors. And those factors are causes too. For example, suppose you choose to stop studying and to go get a pizza. Why? Because you're hungry. All right. Your hunger makes eating a pizza seem better now than studying. And maybe, why do you choose this pizzeria over that one? Well, maybe a friend gave you some advice. This one is better. The hunger, the advice, those are causes of your choice. And that's fine. The fact that choices have causes is not incompatible with their being free. What would be incompatible with their being free is their being determined by their causes. A thing is determined by its causes if its causes make its being as it is necessary. Or in other words, if they make its not being as it is impossible. So you choose to eat because you're hungry. Does this mean that your being hungry makes your not choosing to eat impossible? Obviously not. In fact, you might choose not to eat precisely because you're hungry. You might do that as a penance or just to prove that you can do it. The power of free choice if it exists, is a power to determine one's own desires and actions. A choice just is such a determination. That's what it is. One made by the person who chooses. If it were determined already by its causes, then it would not be a choice at all. 
because you can't decide what is already decided. If it's already determined, you can't determine it. The fourth thing is this. If the freedom of our choices is not incompatible with their having causes, neither is it incompatible with a good deal of general predictability about them. They can be fairly predictable, our choices. I, I say general predictability. I mean predictability in the distribution of choices that large groups of people make. For example, groups of consumers. You know, marketing, there are marketing forecasts made all the time, and they seem to be able to be fairly successful. How many people are going to buy the new iPhone? Well, we sort of know that. This sort of predictability is the result of two things. One is that many of the influences on our choices are themselves fairly predictable. The physical world, the human world, our own bodily and psychic makeup, they have a good deal of stability about them. You know, St. Thomas even thought that astrology could be successful in predicting the natural temperaments of people born at different times of the year. He thought it could work. And that's because he thought that the movements of the heavenly bodies exercise considerable influence on our bodies. And because our bodily constitution has a lot to do with our temperament. Today, we might say something else. We might say that our temperament is a matter of, of genetic endowment or climate or early upbringing or whatever. But Thomas also thought, and this is the more important thing, that people tend to make choices in accordance with their temperaments. For instance, irascible people, people who get angry easily, tend to choose things that satisfy their anger. That's kind of obvious. But Thomas insists that our temperaments do not determine our choices. We can, it's possible to become conscious of one's temperament and to decide that it's better to resist it. So if I know that I'm irascible, I can say, well, wait a minute. Maybe I shouldn't get so angry all the time. Or maybe I shouldn't punch somebody every time I get angry, or whatever. There's a great story about Plato, but I'll, I'll leave that for later. As for astrology, you know, Thomas himself says about astrology, he quotes the great ancient astronomer Ptolemy, the wise man dominates the stars. So he's not determined by the, by the stars either. He uses his reason. That's what Thomas means by the wise man, the man who follows his reason rather than merely physical urges. There's also another reason why our choices have some predictability about them. The choices which we first make in response to a given kind of influence, those choices have their own power to influence our subsequent choices. That is, our choices tend to create habits of choice. Good habits are called virtues. Bad habits are called vices. And together, those make up what is called a person's character. 
It's not easy to choose against one's character. That's not easy. But it's possible. Some people have done it. People have changed. Character does not determine choice either. And in any case, we do have a hand in forming our own character by the free choices that we make. And we know that. One more thing. Mentioning virtues and vices brings us back to the topic of responsibility, moral responsibility. Our power of free choice brings with it you know, the drama of good and evil, moral good and evil, right and wrong. But here's one last thing that free, the freedom of choice is not. It's not only or even primarily a power to choose between moral good and evil or between right and wrong. We tend to think right away about that. You're free to do right or wrong. According to Thomas, the power to choose evil is not absolutely essential to free choice. We, do, we are able to do that, but it's not essential. In fact, it's an imperfection of the freedom of choice. Basically, I'll talk about this again later, but basically it's the possibility of not using the light of our reason as fully as we could use it in making our choices. Explaining that possibility is complicated. It's complicated. But for that very reason, I say when we undertake to study the freedom of choice, it's better not to start with the question of good and evil. That question should be taken up later. Start just with the power to choose among things that are good, morally acceptable things, which can be very serious things. Right? Say, for instance, the power to choose a career or a home or a friend or a spouse. Think about those freedoms. So to sum up this part, there are these five things that free will or freedom of choice is not. It's not a power to choose absolutely anything. We can't choose misery. It's not a power to act at random or for no reason. It's not a power for uncaused acts. It is not incompatible with predictability. And it's not primarily or essentially a power to choose between good and evil, moral good and evil. Okay, so my second part, now the positive side, what freedom of choice is. Essentially, I've already said it, it's the power mm, to determine our own desires. Excuse me. So now I'll try to sketch a positive account, that positive account. Earlier I mentioned that very simple formula of St. Thomas's of what a choice is, to take one thing, refusing another. So a choice is kind of a two-pronged act. It bears both on the thing that you take and on the thing, or maybe the things, that you refuse. So it's, it's literally, it's a decision. You know, etymologically, a decision means a cutting off. You cut off one alternative and you take the other. 
keep the other. So Thomas says that the will, being free, determines itself insofar as it adheres either to this or to that, having both in, in, its, in its power. So a choice is a self-determined act of the will, a self-determined desire, or if you like, a self-determined inclination towards something. What makes us capable of such an act? For St. Thomas, there are two things, two fundamental factors. One is the power to make comparisons. Before you make a choice, typically what we do, we engage, we engage in what he calls counsel or deliberation. We survey the field, we identify alternatives, we gather up the pros and the cons, and we compare them with each other. When we finally choose one, it's because of something about that one, again, that makes it seem better than the other or the others. That's our reason, again, for the choice. Again, we always choose for a reason. So one thing that's essential to free choice is the power to make comparisons. <clears throat> but that's not the only thing. It can't be. Because obviously, in the case of some comparisons, the result is kind of predetermined. So if you compare the numbers 3 and 6 as to size, well, there's not much doubt, is there? Right? Asking which one is bigger, 3 or 6? Well, there's only one answer. But when we deliberate about things, you don't deliberate about 3 and 6 in the abstract. Who deliberates about that? When we deliberate about things, we're not comparing them only as to their size. Size might be a factor. When we're making choices, we're comparing things not only as to size, if size is even a part of it, but as to their goodness, as to their desirability. We're asking which is better. We're looking at them from the point of view, when we're doing that, we're looking at them from the point of view of that master desire, the desire for happiness which is just the desire for total good. That's what gives us a perspective over the whole sphere of the good, the whole range of the good. And that range is enormous. It's enormous. It's huge. It's much bigger than size. Size is only one feature of things. Goodness belongs to many, many different features of things. That's what Thomas says. He puts it this way. He says, Bonum est multiplex. The good is manifold. It comes in many forms, we can say. Just a few examples. There's, there's the goodness of a good deed. There's the goodness of good food. There's the goodness of good music. The goodness of a good guess. Anything. Those are extremely different from each other, those goodnesses. You know, even negative features can be good. So salt is good, but if your french fries are already salty, then not putting more salt is also good. Too much of a good thing is not good. There are many forms of goodness. And moreover, the things we normally make choices about are particular concrete things, things that can be judged 
from many points of view or under many criteria of goodness, many forms of goodness. I'll, get a, I'll give an example of that in a moment. <clears throat> What's this got to do with the freedom of choice? Well, it means that when you have alternatives, an alternative that seems better or that is better with respect to one form or one feature or one criterion can be worse with respect to another. In fact, it always will be. The only thing that is better in every respect is the total good, the perfect good, happiness. And we want that necessarily. But here's a simple example. Suppose, suppose I need a car. All right, I need a car. Here's a car. They show me a car. It's beautiful. It's just a glamorous car. And it's fast and it's sleek. It's powerful. Actually, you know, I rented a car to come here. They gave me a Mustang, a Ford Mustang. It's great. I never drove a Mustang before. It is pretty powerful. <laughs> but, and this is also true of the Mustang, it's also expensive. Right? So they show me another car. It's economical. Not nearly so expensive, but it's kind of clunky. So I could afford the glamorous car, but not easily. It would cost. It would hurt a little bit. And on the other hand, I could put up with my friends poking fun at me about the clunky car if I bought that one. They would laugh at me. I wouldn't like that either. I'm kind of touchy. Right? <laughs> so it's not an easy choice. I'm both stingy and touchy. So. <laughs> See how character figures in. So now I might find the decision so hard that I just keep on deliberating. I gotta find, give, show me another car. Right? But that, the result might be the same. It might be kind of, well, there's, there's pros and cons on both sides. I don't really have to go on deliberating either. Deciding to go on deliberating is a matter of choice too. I could choose to make my choice now. Okay, I'm just gonna take one of these, which one? I don't need an absolute winner. What I know about the alternatives doesn't have to decide the question necessarily or absolutely. I need to make comparisons in order to make a choice, but they're kind of open-ended. They don't determine the choice. We tend to think there has to be something that determines it. There doesn't have to be. The choice itself is going to be the determination. It's going to be I who say, I'm going to take this car or that. Now, you could, you could reply, if what I have before me are these two alternatives, a glamorous but expensive car, an economical but clunky car, then it boils down to a choice between glamour and economy. So don't I need to decide which of those values is more important to me? Well, yeah, in a way I do, and I might stop and deliberate about that. But again, there doesn't have to be an absolute winner. It's I who set my priorities. I decide which one is more important to me and which one is less important. Moreover, in order to choose between the cars, I don't really have to undertake a separate deliberation about those values, about glamour or economy. I can decide between them just by deciding between the cars. 
between the particular things that embody those values. Just by choosing between the cars, I will be giving priority to one or the other implicitly. And that's sufficient. That's fine. <clears throat> now, you might say, well, in any case, don't I need another criterion, another value, standing above glamour and economy under which to compare either those two values or the things that embody those values? No, I don't need another criterion. And this is a point that I think is often missed. I don't need another criterion. I already have all the criteria I need because each of those two values, in this case, is a criterion by which I can compare it with the other one. In other words, I can just compare glamour and economy, and I can say, well, glamour is better than economy with respect to glamour. It's more glamorous. <laughs> right? That's kind of odd. And economy is also better than glamour with respect to economy. It's more economical. And that's all I need. I could use either criterion, either value to make my choice. So the point is that there doesn't have to be an absolute winner. Most of the time when we make our choices, there are. There isn't one, and we don't need one. There's, not, there's nothing that makes it simply necessary to choose this and impossible to choose the other, the way it's impossible for three to be greater than six. That's not the way our choices are. I always have a reason. So if I choose the glamorous and expensive car, I choose it because it's glamorous, not because it's expensive, obviously. And the opposite with the economical car. My reason does not necessitate my choice or make it impossible for me to choose the other car because I also have a reason, a quite sufficient reason, for choosing the other one. My reason is not compelling, that's all. When I take one thing and refuse the other, in Thomas's formula, I'm taking a thing that I could be refusing and I'm aware of it while I'm, I'm taking the other. And I'm refusing a thing that I could be taking. No one and no one makes the choice for me. It's I who make it, that's all. Now you might say, okay, but there's another problem. It was granted, we granted that we desire happiness necessarily. We can't help that. <clears throat> but there are some things that a person takes to be necessary for happiness. For example, Christians take the avoidance of sin to be necessary for happiness, right? As Christians, they cannot think that it is better to sin than not to sin. And yet, it is possible for a Christian to choose to sin. Or at least, that's what I've been told. <laughs> I've heard that. But if so, then there seem to be just two possibilities, right? Either, after all, we do choose for no reason, arbitrarily, we just choose to sin for no good reason, or it is not we who make our choices in light of our own reasons after all, but something else makes them for us. 
and foists them upon, upon us. You know, the devil made me do it. So now here we are in front of the question of the choice between good and evil, right and wrong. As I said, this, this adds complication to the explanation of free choice. I'll try to lay out Thomas's view, Thomas's account very briefly. Thomas does not think that the choice to sin is an exception to the rule that we always choose for a reason, or that what we choose always has a feature that makes it seem somehow better to us than the alternative. What is distinctive of the choice to sin is that the reason is not a good one, and that what one chooses seems better only from a limited or partial viewpoint. So when a Christian considers life as a whole and what is most worth pursuing, he sees that, that sinful things are out of the question, that they derail, that they are not really choices at all. They're not really alternatives. But we're not always considering things from that point of view. And when we are in a situation that calls for a choice, it may be up to us to stand back and take that point of view. And we might do that, we might not. It's up to us to apply our beliefs about what is and what is not truly choice-worthy to what's in front of us. And that can call for effort. And before we make that effort, something that in fact is sinful can present an attractive face to us. From a certain limited point of view, taking that thing can seem better than refusing it. And that's enough for us just to go ahead and choose it. Now, I don't mean that we can't help choosing it. We could very well stop and consider whether on the whole this is a truly viable option. Because after all, considering the truth of the matter is good too. That has a certain attractiveness. And we are naturally inclined to do that. Our minds are naturally inclined to that. And some people do it. Believe it or not, some people resist temptation sometimes. <laughs> they do. But sometimes they don't. So this is why I say that being able to choose sin is an imperfection. It's a weakness. If we always had clearly in mind, explicitly actually, what we naturally value most, we would never choose against it. But we don't always have that in mind. But we have the power to bring it to mind. When we sin, we choose without bringing that to mind when we could have. And it's only then, I would say, that the law of our mind, which is the moral law, it's only then that it begins to feel like an imposition when you've already started to go against it. But another question might come up. Can there be free choice without the possibility of sinning? Are there free choices in heaven? I would say that on Thomas's view, heaven is where free choice really comes to into its own. What we have in this life is only a kind of foretaste of it. Here's an analogy. Think of that heavenly musician, Mozart, 
and think of an amateur hack like me. Okay, we both sit down at the piano. I'm not going to do that. But we both sit down at the piano. Now, whatever Mozart plays, he cannot make a blunder. It would kill him. Right? <laughs> he cannot commit a musical sin. And I, I certainly can. I do it all the time. But now, which of us sitting there sees more possibilities at the keyboard? Which of us can be more creative? Which of us plays with more freedom of choice? It's obvious. Right? The variety in Mozart's output is astounding. There's something new, there's something wonderful every time. With me, it's always the same three riffs. Right? <laughs> executed kind of mediocre. Right? You know, for the most part, sin is boring. It's boring. It's, always, it's almost always the same old stuff. I could go more into that, but I won't. I'm not gonna. <clears throat> the point is one cannot sin in heaven because one sees God in, in his infinite goodness and he is utterly irresistible. But one also sees an endless variety of ways of imitating his goodness. One stands before a myriad of amazing choices. And we here below, we cannot even, even imagine most of them. So, to sum up the second part, a choice is an act of taking one thing and refusing another. Its freedom depends upon two things, the multiformity of goodness and the power to make comparisons. But freedom to make bad choices also involves a third, a third factor, which is not a power, but a weakness, not always having actually in mind what we most deeply want. Without this factor, we would never do anything blameworthy, yet we would still have free choice. And so even Sam Harris might not mind it, for it would not be a source of conflict. Blame would not exist. We would all be friends. But let me conclude now briefly with one other thing without which the account of the freedom of choice would be incomplete. One other cause. In a sense, it's the primary cause. I've already alluded to it in mentioning heaven. There would be no freedom of choice if there were no God. Now, of course, the truth is if there were no God, there wouldn't be anything since all being is from him. But what I mean is our freedom of choice is from God in a special way. God causes some things, you know, by means of the action of secondary created agents, creatures. But no creature can give our soul its will with its natural freedom of choice. Only God can give it that. And this isn't so difficult to see if you simply remember one of the fundamental things that enables us to choose freely. I mean that master desire, the will's drive toward happiness. That drive has a kind of infinity about it. Of course, it doesn't have infinite power. If it did, then we would never fail to reach happiness. And it's not of infinite duration, at least in the past, because it began. 
when we did. But precisely because it began, it needs to have had a cause. But again, it's a drive toward total good, infinite good, universal good, Thomas calls it. No finite good, no created good can fully satisfy it. Nor can any created agent suffice to produce it. It must kind of well up in our soul this desire as a kind of overflow of that absolutely infinite act of will, which is God's own love for his goodness. That love is the cause of all creatures, but in a special way of the rational ones, his images. Thomas says, God moves man's will as the universal mover to the universal object of the will, which is the good. And without this universal motion, it's an interesting expression, isn't it? Universal motion, man cannot will anything. But then Thomas immediately adds, but man determines himself by his reason to will this or that, which is either truly good or a seeming good. And that's where the moral law comes in. Thomas calls it a kind of light, the splendid light of truth, showing us what is truly good. That's the moral law. Showing us what our happiness truly consists in and what any valid path toward it must look like. It's up to us, however, to open our eyes to that light. To be sure, in our fallen condition, we need the help of God's grace to do that, to open our lives consistently, open our eyes consistently to the light. But he offers us that grace, and using that grace is also something which is up to us. So we do bear some responsibility for our own conduct, our own destiny. Is this an imposition? I think we can say it's, kind of, it's a great adventure. You should see it as an adventure. Let me just finish with some words from Veritatis Splendor. Human freedom belongs to us as creatures. It is a freedom which is given as a gift, one to be received like a seed and to be cultivated responsibly. It is an essential part of that creaturely image which is the basis of the dignity of the person. Within that freedom, there is an echo of the primordial vocation whereby the creator calls man to the true good, and even more, through Christ's revelation, to become his friend and to share his own divine life. Thank you.